Good morning, Chapel Hill. Good to be with you on this Palm Sunday celebration. Palm Sunday is really the time when Jesus took off the gloves. It was the beginning of the week when Jesus said, okay, all that stuff that you've wondered about me, it's true. I really am the Messiah. I really am the one that you have been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and, and we're tired of saying shush about it. We're going to declare it to the world. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what, that's what Palm Sunday represents. So we're here to declare hallelujah, Hosanna. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's a wonderful way for us to kick off this celebration this week that we call Holy Week. I'm going to be teaching on a text that follows immediately on the heels of the text Pastor Larry read earlier. We are familiar with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He rides the donkey in and everyone is cheering him along. Well, it's the part that comes next that I want to preach about today. And actually, it's a little bit complex because there are three sections to the reading. I'm going to be reading three different times. Because in order to understand it, you've got to see this as kind of a puzzle. And all the pieces, at first, they don't seem to quite fit. And then in the end, I hope, I pray, all of it will make sense to you. So I need you to buckle up your pew belts and lean in on this and work and remember from section to section. So at the end of it, you will go, aha, let's practice going aha. That's what I hope we will do at the end of the, at the, end of the sermon, all right? Why don't we start by asking the Holy Spirit to, to reveal his truth to us now. Would you join me in prayer? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These were the words that were declared 2,000 years ago, and we affirm them again today. We, we cry out, Hosanna, Jesus, save us, please. And, and in the proclaiming of your word In the telling of your story again, it is one of the ways that you work to save us. So we submit ourselves to your word this day and we pray that you will be revealed to us, our Lord, our Christ, our King, our Savior. For we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 A couple of weeks ago, Cindy and I were back in North Carolina. We were back for a church planting event that the Hackmans were also uh, with us for. And Cindy and I decided to take a little side trip to go visit our daughter Rachel in Montreat. And we rented a car that I think was made by the Matchbox Company cars. It was about that big. Uh, And so we drove around in Montreat in this car just kind of exploring. And we came to an intersection one morning. And off to the right in the cross street of that intersection as we, sta- as we sat there at the stop sign was a monstrous truck. This thing, the tires were taller than our car. It was truly impressive. And he was blinking and indicator to say that he was going to turn uh, our direction. And so we sat and we watched as this guy who had the right of way began to turn. Now, I could barely see the top of his baseball cap which is how high above us this car, this truck really was. So I really cannot tell you what he was paying attention to, but what he was not paying attention to apparently was this tiny little vehicle that he was approaching. Because when he turned the corner, he cut the corner, and he was headed straight for us. I laid on the horn, which sounded like the buzzer in our dryer. He didn't apparently hear it. I barely heard it. So, uh, thinking that if I pushed harder, it would honk louder, I really pressed on the horn. I literally pulled a muscle in my right arm 
trying to make that horn honk louder. It was to no avail. That guy, that truck, this tall, was coming right at us. And I had one thought that flashed through my mind. I should not have declined that rental insurance. (laughs) Actually, there were other thoughts flashing through my mind, but none of them are appropriate for uh, Holy Week. So I kept honking, I kept honking, I kept honking. Finally, he apparently saw me, and he slammed on the brakes. The back end of the truck kind of rises up and then drops back down, and we are sitting there literally inches from this truck's grill. And he's up there, and I'm looking at some North Carolinian bugs that had been squashed on the front of that truck. My arm is throbbing. We're both sitting there. Finally, he backs up, pulls around me, Rolls down his window, leans out and says, sorry. (laughs) Which was nice of him to do, but a little understated given that he nearly rolled over the top of us in that intersection. This morning, we are going to, we're going to talk, we're going to tell you a story about a group of merchants in the temple who felt like this crazy man from Galilee rolled right over the, the top of them. You're going to catch a glimpse of Jesus, the likes of which you have not seen before. If your image of Jesus is something a little bit sissified, soft hands, flowing hair, you're about to have your world kind of rocked here. Because the image that we get of Jesus is nothing like that. He's about to bring down the hammer. A reminder again, he's just come in from the Mount of Olives, on the donkey. He's basically saying, yep, I am what everybody has thought I might be. I am the Messiah. I'm here. He makes his way down to the bottom of Mount Olives, dismounts from the donkey, walks back up the other side of the Kidron Valley, through a gate in the wall there, and into the temple environs. And that is where Mark picks up the story. So we read the first of three sections. I'm going to start just with the very first verse of the text. Mark chapter 3, starting with verse 11. Jesus entered into Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. When you travel with me, and I wish I could take every single one of you to Israel, because when you travel with me, one day we're going to go to the top of the Mount of Olives together. And we're going to look out across what I think is one of the most spectacular sights in all of Jerusalem. This is what you would see if you stood there. It is the Temple Mount. And of course now, sitting on the Temple Mount is the iconic Dome of the Rock with that gold dome. That's what you see. It's very spectacular. But if you had been standing there with Jesus, the same spot 2,000 years ago, it was even more spectacular. This is what you would have seen. This is a scale model of exactly what you would have been looking at. That's the temple on the Temple Mount. Now, in 70 AD, that disappeared because the Romans got sick and tired of the Jews, and they came in, and they wiped them out, and they wiped out the temple. The only thing left of that Temple Mount today are the flagstones that form the courtyard. Everything else is gone. But at the time, that's what you would have seen. And we are told in our text that Jesus dismounted, walked up through that gate that you see right there into the temple environs, and then he just did this. We're told that he looked around at everything. 
We're not told what he was looking at or what he saw. We're not told about what he thought about what he saw. But we're about to to get an idea. So I want you to bookmark this moment where Jesus stood and surveyed all that was in the temple. We're going to be coming back to that in just a moment. Let's continue. On the following day, we read, When they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to... He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. That's odd. Uh, When Jesus lived in, or when he was visiting Jerusalem, he stayed with his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They lived in uh, Bethany, which is about a two-mile walk away from Jerusalem. We are told by Mark that on the Monday after Palm Sunday, Jesus is making his way back to Jerusalem from Bethany. And he's walking toward Jerusalem, and as he does, he performs a unique miracle for Jesus. This is the only time that Jesus performs a miracle of destruction. The only time. He is hungry and he spots this fig tree in the distance. And so thinking he might get a little bite to eat, he makes his way to the fig tree only to discover that although it has leaves on it, there are no fruit on it. It is barren. And and so he curses the tree. Now, This might seem a little odd, even a little cruel to us. We are told that it was not the season for figs. It would be like me standing out in our backyard yelling at the only apple tree that we own in the middle of January saying, make some apples here, what's wrong with you? So it it seems a little odd. But fig trees are different. The first things to sprout on fig trees are little green sprouts, little green bumps called pagim. That's the beginning of a fig. And even though they're not mature figs, you can actually eat those. They are edible. And after those pagim have sprouted, then come the leaves. So if you see a fig tree that has leaves on it, then you can imagine that there's probably some pagim there as well where you can get a little bit of a nibble on the way. But when Jesus got up to the tree, he discovered that although the the leaves were out, there was no fruit on it at all. And so he pronounces this curse on the tree. He says, in essence, this. You have leaves that should have indicated fruit. You have the possibility of bearing fruit, but you bear no fruit. You are worthless. And so I condemn you to a life of fruitlessness. What you are, I confirm for the rest of your life. If you're a member of the Sierra Club, you might find it a little outrageous that the Messiah would curse this poor innocent little tree. And even the rest of us might think that Jesus could have used an extra cup of coffee that morning. He seems a little touchy about this. Really? You'd get this worked up about a tree. Until you discover what he's about to do in the temple. And until you remember that the fig tree is actually a symbol in the Old Testament for the people of Israel. And pretty soon, all of this starts to come together. So let's finish the reading. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who bought and those who sold in the temple. And he overturned the money changers' tables and the seats of those who were selling pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. 
And he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because the people were astonished at his teaching. I want to take one more look at the model. In the middle there, you see the tall building. That is the temple proper, what we know as the temple of, of Jerusalem. Uh, and you'll see also a courtyard that surrounds the temple, in the temple area. And then a, a, a covered, a roofed area, kind of a porch area, all the way around the outside. You see it? It's held up by a series of columns. That porch was called Solomon's porch, Solomon's portico. It was the only place in the courtyard where you could escape the brutal heat of the Middle Eastern sun. And so it was a very popular place. It was also just the perfect spot to set up shop if you're going to sell stuff up there. And that's exactly what happened. Merchants set up their tables, their wares, their seats in between those pillars under the shade of Solomon's portico. It was kind of like a spiritual Jerusalem strip mall. And they had all the stuff you're going to need if you're going to be worshiping in the temple. For instance, money changers. If you, every Jew was required to pay an annual temple tax. But many uh, pilgrims were coming for hundreds and even thousands of miles away. They were carrying coins that had the images of pagan Roman emperors on them. Now, this was an affront to the Jews who considered this a violation of the second commandment, which orders not to make any graven images. And so you couldn't take this pagan filthy coin and use that to pay your temple tax. And so the money changers were there to trade that coin for a good, pure, appropriate temple coin. There were others who were set up there too. If you were showing up from a long distance and you wanted to make a sacrifice, but you didn't have anything to kill... Someone had to provide the animal. If you didn't carry along your own bull or your own calf or your own goat or your own pigeon, well, there were people conveniently ready to offer that, as a, as a, uh, offer that to you. And so you had people that were selling all of these animals that would be used for your ritual sacrifices. Now, on the one hand, these merchants provided a great service to the pilgrims. If you needed to have your money exchanged, you were glad for a money changer. If you didn't have an animal to sacrifice, you were glad that someone would sell you your pigeon or your goat. So it should have served as a real uh, service to these visiting pilgrims, and it would have, except for one problem. They were ripping them off. They were charging exorbitant rates of exchange. They were charging them outrageously for the animals that they could have paid someplace else. It was like trying to buy something to eat in an airport. Right? Like this. I was in the Raleigh airport. I bought this. Eight dollars for this crummy little bag of jerky. There were three pieces of jerky, five crumbs, and a chunk of gristle. That's what I paid eight bucks. I kept the bag just because I feel badly about throwing it away at eight dollars. I mean, what am I going to do? They got me trapped. I, I'm not going to go back out of security and find the nearest 7-Eleven to get a reasonable rate on this. And so they got me trapped. I'm over a barrel, which is exactly what the merchants did 
to the people who were in the Temple Mount. And by the way, the chief priests were also had them trapped because they got a kickback on everything the merchants sold. That's what Jesus was looking at on that night. When he walks in, he's looking around and he's seeing all of this commerce taking place. He saw... He saw this magnificent structure with this wonderful history and a holy purpose and all the the trappings of faith, but it had been turned into a, a religious flea market. And suddenly we understand why Mark includes the story of the fig tree right in the middle of it all. It all makes sense to us. This tree looks like it should bear fruit. It has the leaves that suggest it would bear fruit, but it is barren. And we discovered that the fig tree, in fact, is a parable that Jesus is using to condemn the work of the temple. It had all of the leaves, all of the trappings of religion, but it was fruitless. It was a money-making religious scam, and Jesus drove his pickup truck right over the top of everything. This is not an image that we see of Jesus, this, this intimidating glimpse of the Messiah. It is something very different for us. He walks right into the middle of enemy territory. He is unafraid, all alone, unarmed, flipping over tables, chasing these guys out in front of him. He is on fire. There were temple guards who were on duty, but even they didn't dare to step in and interfere with this crazy guy who was obviously on a mission. This is Jesus as the Old Testament prophet. This is Jesus as the righteous judge. This is Jesus as the conquering warrior all wrapped up into one. And it is also a glimpse of the way that Jesus will come back next time. So much for gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is the angriest we ever see him. We never see Jesus like this. So what is it? that fired the Lord up. Well, certainly turning the temple into a high-priced shopping mall and gouging every worshiper, that seemed to be a problem for him. And we kind of get what he's talking about when we read about pastors who purchase $200,000 Lamborghinis for their wives or a $54 million jet, which they say the Lord told them they had to have we begin to understand a little of what Jesus might have said. He said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You have turned it into a den of robbers. He wasn't exactly subtle about his feelings. Jesus gets riled up when churches rip their people off. So that's part of it. But there is something actually deeper going on here. I want you to see it. You might be surprised to discover that of the many pilgrims who came to the temple... Thousands of them were not Jews. They were Gentiles. They had not yet converted. They had not been circumcised, but they were attracted to Judaism. They were attracted to the God of the Jews. Their religions were full of countless gods. Even the the horrible emperors were being declared to be divine gods. Their worship included prostitution, temple prostitution, and and drunkenness. But they heard about Yahweh. They heard that Israel's God was holy, that he was different, that he was righteous and just, and that he demanded that of his worshipers. So it wasn't just the Jews who were coming to worship Yahweh at the temple. It was non-Jews who longed for something more spiritually than their pagan religions offered. 
The Jews called them God-fearers. God-fearers. And there was even a place for them in the temple. They were, they were welcome there. It was Isaiah who told, uh, that Jesus quoted, who said, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. For all nations, not just the Jews. In fact, the larger courtyard that you have seen on that image on the screen, that larger courtyard, all of that surrounding area was called the court of the Gentiles. That was their place, a place especially for them. By the way, it was the only place for them on that mountaintop. Take a look at a close-up there. You see those two little lines that run on either side of the temple buildings? Those are actually fences on either side that had gates through them. But those fences marked the place that the Gentiles had to stop. In fact, there are signs that were posted at all of the gates on the fence that said, if you are not a Jew and you go beyond this site, you will be put to death. So it was a very big deal. In fact, there is a, we discovered a sign, one of those very signs. There it is. I've seen that sign in a museum in Istanbul, Turkey. That is the only relic that we have remaining of the temple at the time of Jesus. That's amazing. So Gentiles were welcomed to the temple mount. There was a place for them, but they had a specific place that they had to go. And guess where the merchants set up shop? Right in the court of the Gentiles. In other words, what they were doing was squeezing the Gentiles out. It was also squeezing poor people out because they were charging such exorbitant rates that the poor people could not afford to worship God. They were making it harder and harder for God-fearers to become God-followers. I want you to imagine that you're a pagan who has come a long way from a distant land. You'd heard tale of a, of a, of a God called Yahweh, of the people of the Jews. You've heard that you are welcome in his temple. In fact, that there's a, a court that is set aside especially for you. And, and so you make this journey longing to meet this God. But when you arrive, you discover that you're being fleeced at every turn and that the space that's supposed to be set aside for you has been taken over by merchants and you're being squeezed out and pushed to the side. You came to pray, but you can't even hear yourself pray over the sound of the merchants shouting, trying to get the custom of the people around them. How heart sick would it be for you after this long pilgrimage to discover that in fact there wasn't really a place for you in this place, in this temple, in this religion, after all. So you're standing off to the side fuming about this wasted trip and then you have a chance to see a most amazing scene. This terrifying man appears. His eyes are on fire and he's flipping over tables and tearing the place apart. Everybody is afraid of him. Everyone is running away from him. He won't even let them carry their money bags. We're told he wouldn't let them carry anything through the temple. He's chasing them out. And with your minimal Hebrew, you listen to what he is shouting at them and you realize this guy is fighting for me. This Jew is defending me. This Jew is making a place for me in God's temple. Jesus was furious because religious insiders were blocking the religious outsiders. Judaism had become a club of religious elites with barriers that kept people away from God. 
And it didn't just stop at the court of the Gentiles. The farther in you went, the more restrictive it became. Inside the court of the Gentiles was the court of the women. They could only go that far and no farther. Inside the court of the women was where the men could go, but no farther. Inside of that, a room where the priests could go, but nobody else. And inside of that was an even more exclusive room. It was called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. It was the deepest deepest room inside of the temple. And this was the place where it was believed that the Spirit of God, the holiness of God dwelt, the Holy of Holies. And it was blocked by a curtain that was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, and 4 inches thick. It was said that it took 300 men to handle this curtain. And no one was allowed past the curtain except for the high priest and him only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And when he went back behind that curtain, they actually are said to have tied a chain around him so that if he was struck dead by the awesome power of God, they could at least drag his corpse out of the curtain without sending someone else to get it. The farther in you got, the more barriers you discovered But do you remember what happened the moment Jesus breathed his last on that cross? That curtain, 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, 4 inches thick, was torn from top to bottom like a piece of tissue paper. Holy Week was a week of disruption in which Jesus tore down every barrier that keeps people away from God. Barriers of race and ethnicity, barriers of gender, barriers of ordination, barriers of sin. All of it was struck down. What Jesus did in the court of the Gentiles on Monday, what Jesus did in the Holy of Holies on Friday, was make a way for all who long to come to God. That is good news for you if you are a spiritual outsider. If you're here wondering if there's a place for you, this is the most wonderful good news to discover that every barrier that might keep you from God has been knocked down by the awesome, invincible, irrepressible, unstoppable, kind of scary Jesus Christ. You have a friend in him, a friend who was willing to fight for you, a friend who died to make a way for you even if religion squeezed you out. God welcomes you and it's Jesus who made that possible. That is good news. But most of us are not outsiders. Most of us are insiders. In fact, I might be considered the high priest of this temple. So I'm the ultimate insider. And it makes me a little nervous when I read this story. Because I cannot help but wonder... What would happen if Jesus were to walk through these doors right now and look at what we're doing? What would he see? How would he feel about what he sees? Would he find fruit? Would he find people who are genuinely worshiping God with all of their hearts and who are welcoming the seekers who want to know more about this God? Would he find those who are the insiders making a place for them in the parking lot and in their pews and in their circles after church? Is that what he would find? I think so. I hope so. Don't you? If there's a single theme for our church leadership in this last year, it has been this. We need to be better at welcoming pilgrims. 
We need to to scoot over and to make a place for those who are seeking God in this beautiful temple that he has given to us. Next week, thousands of pilgrims are coming. And we saw in this story how much that matters to Jesus. You have a chance to be a part of something that could change eternity. And I hope you will join me in praying that the Spirit of Christ will fall upon this place and that those who walk through here will leave changed forever.